tonight we find ourselves in Romans chapter 3, and we've been looking at verses 10 to 18, which, as we have said, constitutes Paul's closing argument in his case for the guilt of all human beings apart from Christ in the presence of holy God. Verses 10 to 18 amount to a 14-count indictment of the human race taken right out of the mouth of God himself, and by that I mean Paul quotes scripture. He's quoting scripture in these uh, in these uh, verses. And uh, as you can tell, verse 10 begins with, as it is written, and then he just rattles off a bunch of scriptures that prove his point. And so let's read verses 10 to 18. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who, none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, with their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. As I said, a 14-count indictment that's directed at three primary areas of man's person, his character, his conversation, and his conduct. We started looking at the first one last time, character. So Paul first indicts man, fallen man's character. And let me just review quickly from last time. Indictment uh, number one is found in verse 10, where Paul says, quoting scripture, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, what he's doing is he's quoting from Psalm 14, which begins with the words, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The words there is uh, are in italics in your Bible, meaning that they were added by the translators. They, it doesn't appear in the uh, Greek. And the translators will sometimes add things uh, to help clarify the passage. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Here I think it clouds more than it clarifies. All right? Psalm 14 verse 1 actually says, The fool has said in his heart, no God. No God. This is probably more a statement of defiant rebellion than it is one of unbelief and atheism. He says there's none righteous. There's always a person out there who says, well, except me, right? No, you don't get a special exemption. No, there's none righteous. And Paul's using the term righteous in the sense of a person being right with God. Or in other words, no human being apart from Jesus Christ is righteous or, or right with God. And yet, as we said last time, even the most evil people do, on occasion, some good things. But Paul isn't speaking here about people doing right things from time to time outwardly. He's talking about man's character inwardly, his heart. He is saying that man's character at its core is corrupt because his nature has fallen from God's original creation. Uh, we all know the Bible says that God originally made Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden. But when they ate the forbidden fruit, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they fell. Where did they fall from? They fell from sinless perfection. And as such, their fellowship with God was broken. Um, God cannot have fellowship with anyone who's imperfect. What? That's right. Well, but as a Christian, I'm not perfect. Well, not practically. But positionally, you're in Christ. And so God only sees Jesus. He's perfect. 
And that's why we've been accepted in the beloved one, Jesus Christ. We have to understand the theology behind it. God will only have fellowship with a person who is perfect. Now, we're all products of the fall. Yeah, Adam and Eve were created perfect in the beginning, but they sinned. And when they fell, all their descendants after them would be, would be born fallen sinners. God cannot have fellowship. That doesn't mean that unsaved people don't go to church or they're not religious or they try to be moral. I'm not saying that. But Paul is trying to, to get at, he's trying to stay away from the outward actions because even the hardest sinner can do some good things. And he doesn't want a person who maybe does a few good things here and there to think I'm good. No, 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 we're going deeper than that. We're looking at the heart. And the heart of every person born into this world is a fallen heart uh, that has been separated from God. So again, the point uh, that, um, you know, that the Bible makes is that everybody since Adam, born into this world to this very day, every person born of Adam is a sinner and uh, has been cursed and condemned, condemned by God to spend eternity in hell. And most people comfort themselves, though. I'm sure you've talked to some. Most people comfort themselves with the knowledge that God is love. And because God is love, he won't send, a God of love won't send anyone to hell except the worst people in the world. You know, Hamas uh, and other terrorists, mass murderers. You know, certainly not me. Because I know I'm not perfect, but good heavens, I'm definitely good enough to get into heaven. A lot of people are basing their eternities on God's love. You remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, and um, Mark tells us, Mark's the only one who records this, all right? But when Jesus looked at the rich young ruler, this moral and sincere seeker, it says that he looked at him and he loved him. I get no indication from the passage, though, that the rich young ruler uh, repented. His money was on the throne of his heart. Jesus tried to get him to give it all away and put the Lord Jesus on the throne of his heart and follow him completely. But like so many people, the rich young ruler was moral and he was a ruler of a synagogue, so he was religious. And um, he was wealthy. And he thought he could have God and mammon. And, and, and you can't serve two masters. Jesus even said, you can't serve God and <laughs> money mammon but jesus loved him but i get nothing from the passage that indicates the rich young ruler repented and received christ he went away sorrowful the bible says because he had great riches and i assume he died in his sins even though jesus loved him look god's love can't save us god's love has never saved anybody all god's love can do is provide a way by which we might be saved and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, you all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes, you see, God's part, he sent his Son. Jesus submitted to that, died on the cross willingly. Our part is to believe in him. And biblical faith isn't just head knowledge, it's a heart commitment. I give my life to him. The New Testament tells us that it isn't by God's love he saves, saves us, it's by grace made available through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Now, when you understand all of this, you realize that Jesus didn't come to help good people be better, good enough to make it into heaven. 
He came to save condemned sinners from hell. And so, guys, the term righteousness, as used here in Romans 3, verse 10, doesn't refer to doing, but to being. It's a term that doesn't speak of what you do, but of what you are. And as we said last time, there are only two categories that every person falls into, good or bad, uh, righteous or unrighteous, saved or unsaved, that's it. Well, I'm, I'm working towards salvation. No, you're not. No, you're not. Salvation is something, not something you work towards. It's something you receive by faith, and at that very moment, you're saved. You're either saved or unsaved. Oh, but I go to church every day. Okay. But if you think that's going to earn you a place in heaven, you're wrong. You're either saved or unsaved, righteous or unrighteous. And we have to understand that. Now, indictment number two, verse 11. There is none who understands. There is none who understands. Here Paul is quoting Psalm 14, verse 2, and is telling us that not only is man evil, but he's also ignorant. In other words, he's blind to his true standing before God. I'm going to read these to you. You can write down the references. Romans 1, 21. And although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They didn't receive Christ and live their lives for him nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The fool has said in his heart, no God. I don't want God in my life. I don't want him telling me what to do. And so God tries to work with that person, tries to, to convince them, and come, let us reason together, says the Lord, that kind of thing. And God is reaching out to them, and he's bringing people across their path to share the gospel with them. But at one point, if they harden their heart, harden their heart, and harden their heart to a point where they have passed the spiritual point of no return, and their heart is so hard they'll never receive Christ, God withdraws the light, whatever light they had left. And now they are walking in darkness. Ephesians 4.18, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. And it's a self-inflicted blindness, by the way, where a person says, I hear what you're talking about. You've put your faith in Christ. Good for you. Uh, you know, but I don't need that. And so, you know, they impose a self-inflicted blindness on themselves. Now, at this point, all the good folks, quote-unquote, out there would no doubt shout back look i don't care what it says here i'm not evil but in this section as we have said before paul isn't dealing with man's opinion and feelings about himself or herself it's all about what god has said what god has said in his word about mankind you all know jeremiah 17 verses 9 and i'll quote the beginning of verse 10 the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. The heart of fallen man is evil, desperately wicked above all things. And so God has said that not only is man bad, but in his fallen state, he doesn't even understand what is good. He thinks he does. One pastor put it well. He said, and I quote, It's like a pig that has lived its whole life in the mud hole. It's all it knows. It's the pig's whole world, an only frame of reference. It's never seen or experienced what it means to be clean. The concept is meaningless to it. And the same is true with unbelievers who have been born into and have lived their whole life in the mud hole of sin. 
They have no concept of what it means to be clean in God's eyes, and as such, they define goodness as simply not being as dirty as someone else, end quote. He's ignorant. He's blind and he's ignorant. Let me say it one more time. Fallen men and women are blind to their own depravity. It's amazing. God sees them as they really are, but they see themselves completely differently. Proverbs 20, verse 6, pretty much everybody proclaims they're a good person. Most people are blind to their true self. It's kind of like the story I heard about two neighbor ladies talking to each other over the fence. And one lady says to the other, I don't know what this world's coming to. Her neighbor said, well, what are you talking about? Well, last night, somebody broke into my house and stole all my holiday intels. It's like my pastor used to say, it's amazing how awful my sins look when you're committing them. <laughs> Indictment number three, middle of verse 11. There is none who seeks after God. Now this, this really causes some people to go into orbit, okay? There is none who seeks after God. Once again, Paul is quoting Psalm 14, verse 2. To many guys, this statement seems ludicrous. I mean, they would immediately come back with, what do you mean no one seeks after God? I was watching a program the other night on the History Channel about people in the Philippines during Easter week, how they walked barefoot on streets with a lot of jagged, sharp rocks, whipping themselves as they walk. And then when they get to a certain location, one of them actually climbs up onto a cross and endures a mock crucifixion. And you're going to tell me that person or those people are not seeking after God? Or what about the monks? It's always the monks in Tibet or, or the aborigine in the, in the outback of, of Australia or something like that. What about these Tibetan monks? You know, they spend their whole life in celibacy and living simplicity with simplicity and they meditate all the time and they're praying. You're going to tell me they're not seeking God? Look, all I can tell you is that Paul, quoting scripture, says that none seeks after God. So the person shoots back with him, what are they seeking? I don't know. I don't know. Perhaps the guy in the Philippines during Passion Week whipping himself and walking uh, on jagged rocks until his feet and back are bloody and then goes through a mock crucifixion? I don't know what he's seeking. Maybe he's seeking alleviation from his guilt or recognition from his peers or maybe he's trying to gain favor with God to earn himself a place in heaven. I don't know what his motives are. All as I know is the Bible says he's not seeking God. Well, what about those monks in Tibet? What are they seeking? Again, I don't know what's going on in their hearts. Maybe they're seeking peace, or perhaps they're seeking some kind of transcendent emotional experience, or maybe uh, they're seeking a higher level of consciousness. All as I know is that God's Word is telling us they're not seeking after God. Let's get the record straight. The Bible is clear that God can't be found by our human efforts anyways. Many centuries ago, Job asked the rhetorical question, can a man by searching find God? And the answer, of course, is no. No. The Bible says that God is spirit. We've talked about this in Romans chapter 1. The Bible says that God is spirit. Now, spirits can interact with those in the physical realm, whereas man is locked or trapped, you might say, in the physical realm. And no matter how sincere a person is, 
or how hard they try, they're incapable of reaching beyond the boundaries of the physical, natural realm they find themselves trapped in, and therefore they're incapable of knowing anything about uh, the supernatural God. Man trapped in the natural realm can't, by searching, connect with God in the supernatural realm. God has to reveal himself to us, and he did. We can't, by searching, find him. We can't find God by engaging in some kind of a human quest. God has got to reveal himself to us. As one pastor said, he said, and I quote, we can't expect the bug in the bottle to understand the little boy that put it there any more than we can expect the natural man with his natural capacities to understand the supernatural God unless that God chose to condescend to reveal himself to man. And of course, God did this by giving us what the theologians call special revelation. What is special revelation? You have it in your lap. It's the Bible. In just a few days, we will celebrate the greatest special revelation God has ever given to the human race. We call it the Incarnation. John 1.14, where the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what Christmas celebrates. Listen, guys, religion is all about seeking self-fulfillment. It's not really about seeking God. Now, at this point, many would say, wait a minute, but I did seek God. I mean, I remember. I started reading the Bible. I started going to a church. I started talking to Christians, you know, and I, I was hungry. I wanted to know him, and I, I searched for God, and I found him, and I became a Christian. Well, turn to Luke 15. I want to read to you verses 1 to 7. Luke 15. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which was lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over, the, over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Who is the shepherd who goes out looking for lost sheep? It's Jesus. We didn't find him. He wasn't lost. He found us. Oh, but I remember I started having a desire to read the Bible. That was him calling you. You didn't know it at the time. He began to work in your heart. He began to call you. He was looking for you, seeking you. And as he began to call you, you began to stir in your heart. You began to get a hunger for the word. You started going to church because you thought that you'd find God there. Sometimes you will. Some churches you won't. But whenever a person starts, quote-unquote, seeking after God, it's always because God is seeking them. Didn't Jesus say that in Luke 19.10? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. All right. Indictment number four, beginning of verse 12. They have all turned aside. All unbelievers have gone out of the way is the idea, quoting from Psalm 14, verse 3. In other words, guys, they have all turned from the right way and gone astray. That's the basic idea. Fallen man, 
turn from God and his truth to follow his or her fallen inclinations and in the process made a wrong turn into sin, rebellion, and depravity. That's the history of the human race apart from Christ. You all know these, but I'll read them to you. Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Jeremiah 10, 23, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. In Proverbs 14, 12, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. A person looks to their heart to find God. But that heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. They don't realize it. You know, there's out there, you just got to look look within. You know, my truth, your truth, just look with What is it? Look within. Well, that's the devil talking. The devil wants you to look in, turn inward, because he knows what you're going to find is a fallen, depraved heart that he is working through, although you think your heart is guiding you in the right path. The heart of fallen men will never lead a person to God. God has got to shine the light of his truth in their heart, and they either respond or they don't respond. But Jesus said it. Nobody can come to me unless the Father draws them. Now, I believe the Father is drawing all people, not just a select group called the elect. I believe he's calling all people to Jesus Christ. And people have to do with that light and all what they will but god is searching for them god is shining the light into their path and so on but again there is a way that seems right to a man but in the end thereof is the way of death i heard a story years ago about a guy who owned a, a ranch it was in montana or wyoming you know and something like that and um one day he went out to fix uh, the fence. It, something happened. It was kind of broken down. He needed to fix it. Uh, problem was it had started snowing, but it wasn't too bad. So he went out to about 100 yards from the house and began to work on this fence. Well, while he was out there, uh, a blizzard hit, and it was a whiteout, and uh, he couldn't see a thing. But, you know, he had lived in that house for many years. He knew the property. And so he felt like he could find his way home, even though he couldn't see. He just would, you know, just would find his own way home because he knew the way. Problem is, every time he turned in the way he thought was the way to go, he never found his house. They found him frozen to death about 75 yards from his house. He walked in a, a way that he seemed right to him, but it led to his death. I remember one author said, Fallen man has poked his own spiritual eyes out, and now he gropes around in darkness and uh, blindness. All right, indictment number five, middle of verse 12, they have together become unprofitable. Again, quoting from Psalm 14, verse 3. The Greek word for unprofitable is a word that's often used for milk that has become sour and rancid or for fruit that has become rotten. In other words, it's good for nothing. It's good for nothing. Unbelievers, now listen to me. There are many unbelievers that live fruitful lives in this area or that area, doctors and, uh, and uh, other uh, people. 
Uh, I'm not saying that unbelievers can't live a um, successful, important life. The Bible says, but they're absolutely no use to God in their fallen state. That's the idea. Because people read it and go, what do you mean, unprofitable? I mean, you know, I'm the CEO of my company. We employ, you know, 100 people, whatever. Uh, I think it's being living a profitable life. Yeah, but we're talking about from God's vantage point. This is all about what God says about us. It's not about what man says about his fellow man. God said every fallen sinner, every person apart from Jesus Christ, they have become unprofitable to God. They're of no good at all. You know, Paul said in Romans 7, verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, my fallen nature, there dwells nothing good. Apart from Jesus, we have nothing to offer God of any value, of any value. There is nothing God can salvage from our fallen nature to use for his glory. Nothing. Unbelievers think, well, I have some good in me. No. In you dwells nothing good in your fallen state. The only command God has for the flesh is to do what with it? Crucify it. Kill it. It's useless to God. He can't redeem any of it to use unless he redeems all of you when you accept Christ. And now, of course, you are very profitable to God. And he is and will use you for his glory. But not until you're saved. Not until you're saved. All right, indictment number six. There is none who does good, no, not one. The end of verse 12, quoting from Psalm 14, 3 once again. Now here again, there is none good. There is none who does good, no, not one. And people would say, what is the Bible talking about? Because that statement is ridiculous. A lot of people do good things by man's standards. Again, what does God have to say? Isaiah 64, verse 6. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds as fallen human beings, they are nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of God. Hebrew is pretty graphic. They're nothing more than used menstrual cloths. A woman in her monthly period, the flow of blood made her unclean. And God is likening the so-called good works that unbelievers do. I mean, how many people do you know that go to Mass every day? Uh, they're always at church. They're always lighting the candles. They're very religious. I just had somebody in the church say that they know a woman who prays 10 hours a day. I don't know if that's true, but let's say it is true. That's devotion. But it's not going to get you a place in heaven because we don't work for heaven. It's a gift. And people think the more good things they do, the more they go to church and so on and so forth, they're doing a lot of good for God. And God says, no, you're not doing any good for me. You might be doing some stuff for yourself. Maybe it makes you feel good. Maybe it makes you feel better than your neighbor. Gives you a sense of self-worth. I don't know. You know, the word good there in verse 12, there is none who does good. The word good is the Greek word krestetes and speaks of moral goodness that comes from a pure and holy heart something a fallen human being does not have. Again, the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. God doesn't even mess with it. 
Bible never says God changes your heart. It says he gives you a new one. A new one, and you accept Christ. Heart transplants started with God. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How is a person made pure of heart? You accept Christ and God gives you a brand new heart. One author said, If the sun was a heart, then the sunshine that radiates from the sun would be the good we're talking about. Sunshine can't come from darkness any more than true goodness can come from a corrupt, fallen, polluted heart, polluted by sin, unquote. Guys, God sees all actions. This is what a lot of people don't get. God sees all the actions we do within the context of the heart. Is the heart saved or fallen? Is it good or sinful? I've used this illustration before. Let me use it again. Imagine that there was a man who robbed a bank. And he robbed the bank of $100,000. And while he is making his escape, he shot and killed a guard. And while he's fleeing the scene, at one point he stops at his children's hospital and gives 5000 for the kids. Would anyone commend him for his goodness? Was that a legitimate act of goodness? See, this is what we're talking about. We are criminals in God's eyes. What do I mean? Everything we do against God's commandments, His laws, makes us criminals. The Bible says that very clearly. And while we're violating God's laws every single day, we stop at the children's hospital, so to speak, and we give them a few bucks, and we think that that makes us good. First of all, this robber stole from somebody else a bank, killed a guard, and then he's going to try to do something to what? Offset that guilt? That's human thinking. Fallen man's thinking that, you know, God has this scale. And all my good deeds go on one side of the scale, and all my bad deeds go on the other side. And if my good deeds simply outweigh the bad by a little bit, I'm in. I'm in. I don't know who came up with that analogy, but it's not biblical. Here's the criteria. Either you're perfect or you're going to hell. Oh, but that doesn't make sense. Nobody's ever lived a perfect life. Well, I beg to differ. One man did. His name is Jesus. And God said, if you put your faith in him, he'll take your sins and put them on his cross, die in your place, and God will give you the righteousness of Christ in return. And you'll go to heaven based on Jesus' righteousness, not on your own. So that's the first part of man's nature that Paul addresses, character. Then he turns to conversation. Indictment number seven, he says, their throat is an open tomb. Beginning of verse 13, quoting Psalm 5, verse 9. It's interesting, guys, that after describing what we are in character, the first place Paul goes as an, as an indicator of what's inside a person's heart is by what comes out of their mouth. That's interesting. Uh, after talking about the, the, the fallen character of man, uh, his heart is polluted it's depraved it's fallen how do we know that we know it by what comes out of his mouth conversation right i'm going to read these to you you can write down the references matthew 12 verses 33 to 34 jesus said either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad for a tree is known by its fruit brood of vipers 
talking to the Pharisees. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Luke 6.45 A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. An evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19. But those things which proceed out of the mouth of fallen man come from the heart, Jesus said. And it's those things that defile a man. For out of the heart, fallen heart, proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, and so on. Of course, the classic passage on the tongue comes out of James 3. Why don't you turn it? We'll read it since that's what Paul is referring to. James 3, let's pick it up in verse 1, where James said, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. In other words, he's saved, mature, able also to bridle his whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body with this bit. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. One match can burn a whole miles of forest down. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. The devil is really pulling the strings on our fallen nature, and he uses the tongue quite effectively to do his dirty work. Verse 8, But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men, who have been made in the similitude of God in his image. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives uh, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. And he's just talking about how that as Christians, we need to understand that the devil used our tongues quite effectively to run people down and destroy lives and character and so on. And now that we're children of God, we should use our tongues to praise God and speak truth. Uh, when a Christian comes to church and worships God uh, on Sunday, but then throughout the week at work, they're uh, gossiping, backbiting as other people and fellow employees and whatever, James says, you know, that doesn't make sense. A spring doesn't bring forth poison water and sweet water at the same time. Nothing reveals, guys, what's in a person's heart more than what comes out of their mouth. I think that's really the, the test. Um, he again said their throat is an open tomb. Their throat is an open tomb. Uh, God is saying in his word, again, Psalm 5, verse 9, that the throat is to the heart what an open grave is to the corpse within it. In other words, the heart of sinful fallen man is like a rotting corpse, and it is through his throat that the stench 
of that rotting heart comes forth in his words. One writer said this, he said, Tombs were sealed not only to show respect for the deceased, but to hide the sight, of, the sight and stench of the body's decay. As an unsealed tomb allows those who pass by to see and smell what's inside, the unregenerate man's open, open throat, that is, the foul words that come from it, reveal the decay of his heart. Look, you only have to listen to a person. Say you don't know this person. You, you met them somewhere, and you start talking to them, and they start talking to you. It doesn't take very long to find out where they're coming from, right? Years ago, after I'd been in ministry for a little while, I ran into a guy that I used to know. We didn't really hang out, but I, I, I knew him. In fact, we worked together for a little bit. Um, and I, but I hadn't seen him in several years. Okay, I, Since then, I had gotten saved and actually got into ministry, right? So he sees me somewhere, we start talking, and uh, and he launches into this whole thing, what he's involved in, and this, and the women, and this, and that, and all the sin he's involved in, right? And then he stops and says, and what do you, what have you been doing? I said, well, I'm a pastor now. You should have seen the look on his face. I am not kidding. It was priceless. He didn't know what to say. He was in pure shock. I never saw him again. Yeah, he had to go. But... Um, you only have to listen to a person's conversation for just a little bit to know where their heart's at. Are they saved or are they an unbeliever? Indictment number eight, the middle of verse 13, with their tongues they have practiced deceit, quoting Psalm 36, verses 1 to 3. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. One pastor uh, gives illumination to this. He said, and I quote, with their tongues they keep deceiving which comes from a Greek word that has the basic meaning of luring and was used of baiting a hook by covering it with a small piece of food to disguise its danger. When a fish bites the food thinking he will get a meal, he instead becomes a meal for the fisherman. So Satan works, by the way. The imperfect Greek tense of the verb indicates continual repetitive deceit. For the natural man... Lying and other forms of deceit are a habitual and normal part of his life, end quote. I think I'll have you turn to a couple of these. Psalm 52. And I want to read verses 2 to 4. Psalm 52, verse 2. Your tongue devises destruction, like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. Well, the tongue doesn't act alone. It's attached to a person. Now, he's talking to the tongue like it's a person itself. We understand what the psalmist is saying. The tongue can either bring healing, it can either build up, or it can tear somebody apart like a razor. Proverbs 6, this is a good one. Proverbs 6, if you turn there. And let's read, starting with verse 16. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. So I think it would be very important that we understand what these seven things are. Uh, these seven things God singled out uh, to say, I hate these the most. Wow, all right, what do, you, what do you got, Lord? What do you hate so much? A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, 
a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among brethren. Do you see that three of the seven involve the tongue? And you know this one, John 8, 44. Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. That's the idea. Indictment number nine. He said the poison of asps is under their lips. It's the end of verse 13, quoting Psalm 140, verse 3. One writer says, and I quote, The fangs of such a deadly snake ordinarily lie folded back in the upper jaw. But when the snake throws his head to strike, these hollow fangs drop down, and when the snake bites, the fangs press a sack of deadly poison hinder, hidden under the lips, ejecting venom into the victim. Jesus called the Pharisees a brood of vipers because of the poison that came out of their mouth. I mean... A person doesn't have to spew vile talk to poison someone to death. They could spew false doctrine like the Pharisees. Indictment number 10. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That's verse 14, quoting Psalm 10, verse 7. Uh, guys, cursing comes from a Greek word that means to speak evil against someone, to publicly desire the worst for someone through open criticism and defamation. It's not just, you know, it's not just cursing somebody in your heart. You're taking it to the next level and going out into the streets, and basically anyone that will listen to you, you're cursing this, you're defaming them. Bitterness means to openly express emotional hostility against an enemy. Look, let me just close with this. The interesting thing when it comes to slander, gossip, cursing, uh, and bitterness being likened to snake's venom is that the poison of many snakes contains neurotoxins that render the victim paralyzed and unable to fight back to defend themselves. The curses and bitter words towards another spoken against them, listen, in their absence, like venom, renders them helpless to defend themselves against it, and in the process kills their character. Psalm 64, verses 3 and 4. Talking about the person who sharpens their tongue like a sword and bends their bow to shoot their arrows, bitter words, that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. It's interesting how that since social media has been invented, how bold people are to destroy people with their tongues. There's something about seeing a person face to face which causes you to weigh your words more carefully. Maybe because you don't want to crush them right in front of you. Maybe because you don't want them to beat the snot out of you uh, if they're bigger than you. Um, it's amazing how everybody has gotten very bold when they look at a little screen and they fire off their bitter words. And they condemn people they have never seen, never met. And this happens in the church. I'll close with this. One author said, you have a tongue that you can use to ruin the reputation of someone else. 
You can ruin the, the fair name of some woman. You can ruin the reputation of some man. I think today the most vicious thing in some of our churches is gossip that is carried on, end quote. Yes, gossip that flies under our moral radar. You know, Christians are going to stay away from you know the big stuff, okay? But for some reason, then, a lot of Christians want to give themselves the, uh, the freedom to gossip and slander. Now, it's all done in the name of uh, prayer concerns. I'm just sharing this because I really am concerned about them. No, you're, not. you're ripping them apart because it makes you feel good. We have to understand that, you know, again, our tongues can build up or they can tear down. And as a Christian, we should seek to always use our words to build up. A lot of Proverbs that talk about the tongue can either be used to heal or to hurt. Of course, the mark of an unbeliever is they just people just use their tongues to shred people all the time, lie, gain the promotion by putting others down, taking credit for others' work that they didn't do but are taking credit. I mean, fallen people, that's where they're coming from. They're always lying but christians we should know better and by god's grace not use our tongues to destroy but to honor god uh, jesus said you know the devil he's a liar from the beginning it's all he ever does is lie when he lies he speaks his native language don't be like that don't be like that father we thank you lord for your goodness and grace we thank you that we are about to celebrate one of the most incredible times of the year I, we don't know exactly when jesus was born uh, but he was born. The word did become flesh and dwelt among us. What an incredible thing to think about, how God became man, uh, that you might die in our place, Lord. We thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.